Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Hey, first of all, let it be known that I am not a potluck hater. Contrary to popular belief, I do not hate potluck. I just don't want y'all to have to do anything. I want you to just come and enjoy uh, a time of fellowship with all of us just gathering together. So, now, I, ha I did see a picture one time, and I think we had it on the screen, of somebody cooking something for potluck, and their cat was on the counter, and the casserole was sitting there, and the cat's tail was in the casserole. So maybe I'm a little bit of a potluck hater, but I'm really not. I'm really not. Um, but anyway, my name is Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on the staff at Church on the Trail. I'm super thankful that you are here, uh, whether you're here physically or watching on Facebook or on YouTube, and this could be next Thursday and you're listening to the message on, uh, on uh, our podcast or whatever that, whatever that may be. Today, you notice uh, we are starting a new series, and it is, the, it is the seventh series in this journey that we've been going through the book of Acts, and we, we, we preach through books of Scripture, and sometimes if they're long books, it takes a while, but we separate, we separate it out into different series, and today this is the seventh in this series. I think we started maybe uh, eight or nine months ago, something like that. But I believe that it's a good time, at least to, to kick this off today, to, to look back at, at kind of where we've been. So look back at Acts chapter 1 in verse 1. Luke writes, in the, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. He's talking about the first book. Luke, the writer, Luke is a historian. And he's referring to his gospel, the gospel according to Luke. Third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is a historian. That was the first book that he wrote, and he sent it to this guy named Theophilus, which means lover of God or, or God lover. And that first book was all about what Jesus began to do and what Jesus began to teach. And that is important because Luke wrote volume one, the gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And and Acts, the second volume, the book of Acts, is all about the continued doing and the continued teaching of Jesus. I want you to think about this. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of the finished work of Christ. Jesus says to the Father in John chapter 17, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've done the work that you sent me to do says, I glorified you by doing that. And then on the cross, according to John chapter 19, just before he gives up his life, he said, it's finished. It's finished. Well, what's finished? The work, the task that the Father sent him to do. So the four Gospels tell us all about the finished work of Christ, the long-expected sacrifice for sin that completely satisfies God's justice is done. And so with that, that finished work, he he purchases back. We saw one of the songs we sang a little while ago. It talked about the ransom. And so that he purchases back this, that with his death on the cross, this, this huge spectrum of people, this broad spectrum of people all throughout history. That's the work that Jesus finished. But then also, that's the work that he began. The work of proclaiming the gospel, the work of teaching the kingdom, the work of living the kingdom. It was really only just beginning. So maybe we could say that 
that he began his ministry by collecting all that believe. And you know, by the time that he ascended to heaven, the end of Luke, the beginning of the book of Acts, there was just a small number of them. They called them followers of the way. It was a small number. They're all in one tiny little country sandwiched between Asia and Africa in the Giza region where these cool sheets are. No, I'm kidding. They're all in this one little country that's sandwiched there. There's about 120 of them gathered in this upper room in Jerusalem, and there's several hundred more uh, up a little north in Galilee, and that's the beginning. That's what Jesus began. Now, Luke's second book, the book of Acts, is a story of what he continues to do and what he continues to teach. Acts is really the first book of church history. So Luke's gospel, like the, like the other gospels, they tell the story of the fulfillment of Old Testament, hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. And the Old Testament provides the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and the gospels give us the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. I want, you, I want to read to you the first four verses in volume one in the Gospel of Luke. He starts out, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write, Luke says, it made sense for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That phrase, some translations say that you would know the exact truth. Some say that you would know how well-founded these things are. Luke is a meticulous historian. Luke is a meticulous historian, and Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has put in his mind and in his heart to write this meticulous history. And so he starts writing one long history. And what was his goal? His goal was truth. His goal was truth, trustworthy truth. Luke doesn't have any idea that what he's Writing is going to be the gospel according to Luke. He, he has no idea that he's writing the book of Acts. He's just providing absolute certainty of the facts of redemptive history. That we would know how well founded and how well grounded in fact our beliefs are. So Acts continues this story of the well founded things. The exact truths of, of, of God fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. With the coming of the Messiah and subsequently the Messiah's crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. And God continues to fulfill the story. And Luke writes in Acts with the same laser precision. Well, why? To provide certainty so that you and I can have certainty. That we can have well-founded reasons to know and to believe and that we can trust that we can trust the words that are in this book. So the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, right at the end, Jesus opens up their minds and their hearts to, to understand Scripture. And he says this in Luke 24, 46. He says, thus it is written, and this is Jesus talking, 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you're witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father, the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. He says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's how volume one, the gospel according to Luke ends. And volume two begins with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's promised in Luke and comes in the book of Acts. Precise, laser precise history. The Holy Spirit would show up and the work would continue on. Volume, volume one runs with certainty from Jesus' birth to his ascension. And volume two with the same certainty from his ascension to the coming of the Holy Spirit, to the birth of the church, and to the, to the gospel being proclaimed out to the world. God is unfolding history. God is he's unfolding his story. This book is his story. And the Holy Spirit works the will of the Father, and the Son does the will of the Father, and God is at work redeeming his people. So today that gets us up to Acts chapter 13. First message in a series called A Tale of Ten Cities. And this passage that we're going to be in is the launching point. It's the name of the message today is launching point. It's the launching point for the most audacious and daring and challenging step ever taken by any organization in the history of the world. The body of Christ is unleashed in Acts chapter 13. The church is unleashed on the world in chapter 13 of Acts. Very intentionally, very intentionally with an effort to, to carry the gospel to the whole world. That is what we are called to do, y'all. So the church commissions its first two missionaries for the, for the deliberate purpose of meeting the world's desperate needs for Jesus. And so this new series that we're starting today, we're going to track the first missionary journey ever in a tale of ten cities. And it's called that because they traveled to, thank you, ten cities. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which is crazy. We'll get to that in a minute. And Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 1, we're talking about the church at Antioch. Great church. Church at Antioch is a great church. So the first thing this morning is that the first missionaries were members of a great church. It was a church that reached out to everyone, to everybody. God chose this church to become the mission and the, and the evangelistic center of the world. It was the launching point. The stage was set and, and now the Lord is ready to send his word out to the whole world. The first three phases of the Great Commission, the first three phases have been launched. 
Jesus' guys had left a witness in Jerusalem. His guys had left a witness in Judea. His guys had left a witness in Samaria. And now it's time to go out into the, into the whole world, reaching out even to the end of the earth. You remember Jesus' last words, y'all. And last words are lasting words. Last was last words on the planet. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is the pivotal verse in the entire Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he said this. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. Don't you understand, y'all, when, when we are saved and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we have got him living inside of us. And he wants, to, he, wants to, you to, to, he wants to work in your life and wants you to tell the whole world about him. So that what happened in Acts 1-8, he tells them what the deal is going to be. And then at Pentecost, they receive power because the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Power to do what? Power to do what he said to do. Power to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now in Acts 13 out to the end of the, of the earth. So God chose this church, the folks in this church, the body of Christ in Antioch, to launch to the end of the earth. Now look, I'm not in the mind of God, but I do believe that there is a bit of a warning here for every church. And this is a little bit of an aside, and it's this. That he could have chosen, well, he could have chosen anybody he wants. It almost made sense that he would choose the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem church had been the first one and it had been kind of the mother ship for quite a while. But the truth is the Jerusalem church was too narrow, too traditional to do the job. Too many of its members, which was mostly Jewish Christians, they were still too prejudiced. They still were holding too tightly um, to feelings that were kind of against the rest of the world, against the Gentile world. They refused to freely and to wholeheartedly commit themselves to world missions and to evangelism. They, they, they refused to, to repent of their, of their exclusivity, of their, their, their self-anointed kind of exclusiveness and their formal approach to God. So God raises up another church, this church in Antioch North. He raises up this other church to become the center of his mission upon the earth. I want you to think about what that means. It's a warning to every one of us. Some leaders other than the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Christian leaders, had to be chosen to launch God's purposes across the planet. The Jewish leaders had, had proven too slow in launching out in the, in the full liberty and the freedom of God's spirit. They'd proven way too slow in doing that. They also had waited too long to repent of their sin. God was ready to move out into the world, raise up leaders who would commit their lives 1,000% fully to the gospel, 1,000% fully to to carry the gospel out to the whole world in unrestrained and in a free spirit. This church in Antioch was diverse. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Very diverse church. It is an image of what the Lord has in his mind with the body of Christ. 
black, white, blue, green, purple, rich, poor, North Columbus, East Columbus, South Columbus, West Columbus. This is a diverse church in Antioch. Just look at the guys that are mentioned in verse 1. Barnabas. Barnabas was a wealthy guy. Barnabas was a guy born, born in Cyprus, and he was born Jewish in Cyprus. Barnabas. And then you look at, at Simeon or Niger. The name Niger means black-skinned. I read this week that some think that he possibly was from Africa. Well, of course he was from Africa. Of course he was. He was part of that church in Antioch. You got Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius was probably one of the poor persecuted believers who had, fell, who had, who had flown up to, uh, to Antioch when the, when the church was scattered because of persecution. If he was one of the founders of this great church, he arrives in Antioch and, and he and the others begin to share Christ with the entire community, Lucius. And then you got this guy, Manaean, and Manaean was involved at the highest level of Roman government. He was a member of the court of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, been the tetrarch in Galilee. He was in charge in Galilee, and Manaean had been on, in his cabinet. Manaean had been in his court, and now, now Manaean gets saved. His life is radically transformed, and he is part of the leadership of this church in Antioch. Y'all, God can use all kind of people to get done, and he does use all kind of people to get done what he wants to get done. Rounding out this list is Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul. Saul was a, he was a highly trained rabbinic Jew, studied under, discipled under Rabbi Gamliel. He was also a Roman citizen. That is super odd, but this was Saul. And he's mentioned last in this list as though he may have been considered the least important at the time of these folks in Antioch. But if, if he was kind of in the background there, he would not stay in the background. The point is this, that this list gives us an idea or an image. It paints this picture of the truly international makeup of this church in Antioch and the broad super broad spectrum of people who are being reached by the gospel. They reached all kinds of people, all kind of different needs, all kind of nationalities, all kind of races, all kind of socioeconomic uh, levels. Nobody is excluded. Y'all get that nobody is excluded from the gospel. Everybody was invited to Christ. Everybody was welcomed into the fellowship and the ministries of this church. That is the way it is supposed to be. Y'all, when people walk in our doors, we ought to be loving on them. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't care if they're barefooted and their clothes are tattered. I don't care what color their skin is. The Lord doesn't. And Antioch is this perfect image of the way that it ought to be. This church was a ministering church. It was an incredible outreach church. And it was just the kind of church that God needed to launch and support the first missionaries of the gospel out into the world. Y'all, in the, in the parable of, of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said this. He's telling his guys. 
He said, go therefore to the main roads. He tells them, go out. Go outside of where, wherever they're having the wedding. He says, go out into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. You and I should invite as many as we can find to the wedding feast. As many as we can find. Lord, just give me one more. Lord, just give me two more. Lord, cross my path at the Walmart with so-and-so. As many as we can find. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. So this is a great church, and this church is, is already very, very missionally minded. Number one. Number two, we see this. The, the very first missionaries were given special gifts of the Holy Spirit. Very special gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want you to, don't ever forget, it's not what this message is about, but if you are a believer, if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, he has given you a gift. Don't know what it is, hope you know what it is, but he's given you at least one. And it's a gift that he has determined to give you so that you can do the work, do the ministry of a Christ follower. And so these guys were, were, were given special gifts of the Holy Spirit. They were gifted as prophets and they were gifted as teachers. They were strong spiritual men. They were at the very heart of what is going on in Antioch. Barnabas and, and Paul were also apostles. Apostles were multi-tooled. Apostles could hit for average. They could hit home runs. They could steal bases. They could bunt. They were fast. They were like a five-tool baseball player. Apostles were teaching pastors. They were teachers. They were prophets. They were evangelists. They were kind of all these things rolled up into one. But the other three, Manan and Lucius and Simeon, they were not apostles. So this prophets and teachers is really a definition of their responsibility. Let me say this about prophets in the New Testament. Very, very important men. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, he said that the household of God was built on apostles and prophets. Very, very important to the church. Generally speaking, the apostles were the ones who, who wrote scripture. They were the ones that the Holy Spirit inspired to write scripture. And they spoke direct revelation from God. They were more generally more concerned with theology and with doctrine. The prophets who also spoke very often directly from the Lord were more concerned with practical life of the church, with the pragmatics of what is going on. Like when, when Paul spoke for God, it'd be some theological thing like Romans chapter 5 or 6 or 8. When one of these New Testament prophets spoke, he might say that God has revealed to him that he wants Paul and Barnabas to go. In other words, real life instruction for the church. The New Testament prophets did two things. They delivered new truth. They delivered new, um, new information. They, uh, they, they provided insight sometimes, oftentimes. They provide insight into, uh, into information or truths that had already been laid out. Their ministry was building up the body of believers. Building up the body of Christ. By giving them the things that God wanted them to hear. Now the person with the gift of teaching. You got the gift of teaching. You bear one of the greatest responsibilities given by God. The gift of teaching is the ability to understand and communicate God's word. 
It is to understand and communicate God's word in a relevant way, in a meaningful way, in a way that applies to people's lives. The gift of teaching is it's given to a believer who commits his life to the word of God. A person who loves scripture can't get enough of it. Just loves, loves, loves sharing the truth claims that this book makes. Just loves it. Picks it up and reads it in the morning. Reads it during the day. Prays over it. Just can't get enough of it. Typically, somebody that has the gift of teaching. Verse 2. While they were worshiping, and the King James says ministering, it's kind of while they were worshiping or ministering the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So these first missionaries, they were called while they were worshiping or ministering and fasting. They were called while they were doing that. So these men were faithful in their ministry right where they were. They were serving in this church in Antioch, and they were called while they were doing that. They were worshiping and fasting, serving all the people that were there. They weren't waiting to, to, ser to serve until they reached out into the highways and the byways and out into the mission field. No, they were serving right there, right where they were. They didn't look away from the needs that were all around them. Y'all, there's plenty of needs. In this room, there's plenty of needs. And there's surely plenty of needs out on the other side of that door. So they didn't look away from the needs that were in their community. They just did what they did. They served the Lord by serving his people. Paul would later write in Colossians chapter 3. He said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. When you serve his people, you are serving him. And I believe it was because of their faithfulness where they were that God knew that he could trust them with a bigger task, with a bigger mission. Think about this. God calls those who are faithful where they are. And where they are, where they were, it didn't sneak up on God. Where you are didn't, didn't sneak up on God. He didn't, he didn't wake up and say, oh, I didn't see her working there. I didn't see him in school there. You know, I remember, spent 10 years training 150, 175 real estate agents. It didn't sneak up on God that that's where I was. And it was a total shepherding job. It was like herding cats. It was like herding feral cats, actually. <laughs> right? But you know what? Am I right or wrong? It was a shepherding job. I constantly had this. It was a total training for pastoral ministry. I would constantly have a line at my door coaching and mentoring these folks. And about half the time had something to do with real estate. And about half, the, maybe a third of the time had to do with something with real estate. And about two-thirds of the time, it was just life. It was a total pastoral ministry thing. And I worked in a company that allowed me to inject biblical principles in all of the training. It was a total training for this. And I had absolutely no earthly idea 
that that was training for this. Not the vaguest idea. God did. He said, I'm going to put you where you are and let me see what you're going to do. Y'all, wherever it is that you are, it didn't sneak up on him. And so these men that were chosen, they had apparently come together to, to discuss the matter of world evangelism. And they were fasting and they were praying over seeking God's will. And here's a little point. God uses people who sense and feel the desperate needs of the world. Sense the needs really so deeply that they will even set aside food and everything else in order to seek God's face. So I want to encourage you with this today. Be faithful in serving and ministering and worshiping wherever you are. Wherever you are. You've got a mission field at work. And you may not have ever thought about it that way. I guarantee you, you've got a mission field at work. I guarantee you, you've got a mission field at school. You've got a mission field at Little League. You've got a mission field at, at youth soccer. You've got a mission field at youth football. You've got a mission field at piano lessons or guitar lessons, wherever it is. Shoot, you've got a mission field right here in this church every Sunday. Every Sunday. So the Holy Spirit called them while they were in Antioch worshiping and fasting. The Holy Spirit is going to, he's the great nudger. He nudges you along. And he'll nudge somebody's path to cross with yours. Listen to him in your mind, in your heart. Listen to his leading. Listen to his guiding. Be obedient to his word. And the only way to be obedient to his word is to get into the word. Every day, get into his word. Supernatural. So he calls them while they're there, worshiping and fasting. And then the first missionaries, they received a, a really specific call. The call came from the Holy Spirit. They were set apart or consecrated for the work chosen by God, set apart by the Holy Spirit. God is the one that chooses the work that he wants them to do. Several things that are kind of critical for every believer and for every minister of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit that causes the believer to serve God. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Paul and Barnabas were not called by the church in Antioch. They were called by the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that. They weren't called by other leaders. No, they were called by the Holy Spirit. They weren't called by their own self-determination. I think I want to be a missionary. No, the Holy Spirit called them. And Jesus' words, his words, true, as true today as they were for Paul and Barnabas 2,000 years ago. And the Apostle John records these words in John chapter 15. Great chapter in John. Go read John chapter 15. But Jesus said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. You know what abide means? That your fruit would be long lasting. He says, I chose you. Don't miss this, man. The Holy Spirit, he wasn't simply calling Paul and Barnabas to a life of witness. Not just a life of sharing their Jesus stories. Every single believer who has ever lived or ever, 
ever will live is called to be a witness for Christ. Every one of you, if you are a Christ follower, are called to be his witness. Paul and Barnabas were not called just for that. No, the Holy Spirit was calling these two men to a very specific task, to a lifetime of commitment to ministry. They were never again going to be lay believers. But they were to give their lives to serve God as full-time evangelists and missionaries. The call of the Holy Spirit comes as a, at, a, at a very specific time, in a very specific place, with a very specific um, task or tasks. He speaks to a call to a believer's heart and mind, and the voice and the will of God are absolutely unmistakable. The call of the Holy Spirit is a call to be His. It's a call to be possessed and to be overwhelmed by His Spirit. The called believer is separated to belong to the Holy Spirit, to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit, to submit to the will of God, to allow the Spirit to live and to move and to shake inside of His very body. Y'all, to, to be possessed and infilled and guided and led and controlled completely by the Spirit. To surrender to the Spirit's will and purpose and use. And yeah, the call of the Holy Spirit, it does involve work. It absolutely does involve work. But it's the work that He has chosen for a called believer to do. The Bible tells me that I have been separated for the work to which the Lord has called me to do the work, and I ran for eight or nine years away from it, but called to do the work of ministry, called to build up and to teach and to train and equip the body of Christ. What an awesome honor and privilege and responsibility. I remember 22 years ago, about 22 years ago. Just gotten saved, I don't know, three, four months later, I was talking to a gentleman named Don Wilhite. I've talked about him before. Kind of a mentor for me. And I didn't know nothing about, uh, I just had this feeling inside. And I said, I said, Don, I said, how do you know if you're like supposed to be w w working in a church? And he said, you mean called into ministry? And I said, well, I don't know what that means. Well, what does that mean? That's not Jewish language. Like, what does called mean? He says that means that God, how do you know that God is calling you? And he always said full-time vocational ministry. Because he always said every minister, every believer is a minister, and every minister's got a ministry, which is very, very true. But I just felt this little nudge 20-something years ago. I didn't know what called. I had the vaguest idea what that meant. And, and he's so, such a master at stating the obvious. And he said... Can you imagine doing anything else for the rest of your life? And I said, yeah. He said, then you're not called into full-time vocational ministry. He said, if that answer changes, then you are called into full-time vo vocational ministry. And he's about 6'6", six, six, and he put his arm around me, and he looked down, and he said, don't make hard work out of easy work. He said, it's simple. Answer that question, and you'll know, you'll know what the deal is. You know, and then the day happened, you know, 15 years later or something, where the answer to that question did change. And it was unmistakable. When the Holy Spirit 
is speaking in your mind and in your heart unmistakable, overwhelming, chill bumps. It's unmistakable. So these first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they received a very specific call. And then what did they do? These first missionaries, they bathed it in prayer and fasting. Verse 3 tells us, Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Paul and Barnabas, they didn't launch out immediately. This new call was too momentous. It was too ginormous. It was too big. It was too important. It was too big of a deal. They didn't just run out the door. They had to take a breath and, and seek the face of the Lord. They had to bathe all of what was going on in prayer and in fasting. They had to seek the Lord for this deep sense of, of, of his presence and of his power. And they had to seek him for the direction of his will. They wanted to know what the deal was, what they were being called to do. And then last, these first missionaries, they were commissioned by the church. Verse 3, end of, end of verse 3, it said, They laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church, particularly these other three guys, laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they sent them off. So this was apparently, this is this official meeting of the church called for the very specific purpose of commissioning Paul and Barnabas. The church was not, please hear this, the church was not calling and setting these two men apart. The Holy Spirit called these two men. The Holy Spirit set apart these two men for the ministry of the gospel. The church was acknowledging the Holy Spirit's call. The church was commissioning these two men to go out. The church was committing to support, to pray for and support these two men. They did it. They laid hands on them and they sent them off. The church was surrendering and obeying the Holy Spirit's leadership and allowing these two men to now be separated from the Antioch church and go out into the mission field. But it's the whole, this, this whole passage, is it's not about the Antioch church. It's not about Paul and Barnabas and Simeon. It's not about Lucius. It's not about Menaean. It's about the Holy Spirit. It is about the guiding and the leading and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's about being in tune with listening to the voice of the Lord. And I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm talking about the chill bumps. Like I'm talking about the unmistakable voice of God in your mind and in your heart. And we have to surrender to that and surrender to his will. That's what these guys did. And it's not even just what these guys did. It's what the other three did and the hundreds of people who were part of that body of Christ who were willing to say, you are two of our leaders, but we're sending you out to change the world. And it was a fulfillment of the end of Acts 1.8. The most audacious step any organization has ever taken in the history of the world. You just witnessed in the first three verses of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Now there's, how do, what do we do with this today? What do we, how do we respond to, uh, to God's word today? And maybe this is selfish, maybe it's not, but I'm going to ask you to do this. 
I'm going to ask you in the coming days and weeks and months to pray for our pastoral staff. We need it. I'm going to ask you to pray for me that I would not mess up whatever God's got going on every Sunday morning because I'm liable to mess it up. That's, that's my prayer every Sunday is, Lord, give me your words. Get me out of the way and give me your words to speak. Let somebody within earshot who doesn't know you come to know you because of something that happens in this room or on the kids' side or in the parking lot or on the, in the, back here in the back in tots. Lord, just do something with what goes on here on Sunday morning. So I'd ask you to pray for me. I'd ask you to pray for Richard. Praise God, Richard works for Corporate Chaplains of America, and he's on our pastoral staff. That joker is in contact with people in businesses all over the valley all the time. He is leading people to Christ on a daily basis. Praise God for putting, you think it snuck up on the Lord that Richard went to work for Corporate Chaplains of America? No, he guided his steps. He went before him. Pray for him. He is up and down 185 and here all over the place all the time. Pray for Norman Dunlap, our executive pastor. Pray that the Lord would cross his path with folks that need to hear. Pray for James, our worship pastor. Pray for him that he would lead the, uh, the musical part of our worship. Pray that he would do that in spirit and in truth and in listening to the Holy Spirit. This is not just music so we can say the music is cool. No, no. We are worshiping the God that just breathed and spoke everything into existence. The only reason that we're all here is because he put the breath in our lungs. And we get to praise him. Right? We get to bring glory to him. We get to honor him. And we should be doing it. James said it a little while ago. We should be doing it. Yes, it's Sunday morning. But we should be doing it every day. People that you work with should look at you and say, there's just something different about you. And, and can you tell me what that is? Man, you need to be leading them to Christ. Those opportunities, they come along all the time. You just got to put your little antenna up and notice when it happens. Let them see the compassion in your life. Let them see the kindness in the words that come out of your mouth. Let them be Jesus' words that come out of your mouth. We don't need to add, we don't need to add to this book. We don't need to take away from this book. We worship Jesus Christ in this church. We don't add something to the gospel and we don't take something away from the gospel. You know why? Because he's more than enough. He's not just enough, he's more than enough. Be his hands and feet out there in a lost and dying world that is desperate to hear the gospel. And they don't even know it. And use words when necessary. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And if you don't know him, as we sit here today, if you don't know him, I'm just going to ask you one super simple thing. Please don't go to bed tonight without considering the offer that he makes. Just consider it. Come down here to this cross and pray. 
And if you've got anything to pray about, I invite you down here to pray. But come down here right now if you want to. But at a minimum, if you do not have a relationship with him, just consider it. Just consider it. We'll have somebody on our prayer team back in the back that would love to pray with you. I'll be down here. I'd love to pray with you. But I just beg you to consider the offer. And the offer is this. I said a little while ago that Jesus on the cross right before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. Three of the most powerful words ever, ever to telestai. It is finished. What's finished? The work of redemption is finished. The work of purchasing you back was finished. That death, this is all, this is the gospel. You and I are sinners and the sin's getting paid for. And you can pay for it yourself. Stupid choice, but you can pay for it yourself. Or you can accept that his death on that cross took care of it. Confess that with your mouth. Believe that he walked out, that he was buried, died and was buried, walked out of a grave three days later. Provides eternal life. The truth is, you're going to have eternal life. He provides eternal life with him. What an incredible opportunity. Cry out to the Lord to save you. That's it. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today and we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that you make eternal life with you available. We do not deserve it at all. That's grace. And it may make no sense to us, but your word is true. Luke writes it so that we can have well-founded reasons to believe. And so, Lord, my prayer is that somebody here today would hear your word and would surrender and submit their life to you. Lord, and, and, and it may be a scary thing for them. And it may cost them friends. And it may cost them part of their lifestyle. And it may cost them family. Lord, you know I can, I can understand that one. But Lord, I pray that they would confess your death. That it paid for their sins. Lord, and they... they would believe that you walked out of that grave alive and that they would cry out right now, save me. Father, we love you and we thank you and it is in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.